The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I am your host Ethan Gilson and this is episode 23. Today we have a uh, a new friend to me. I've only known him uh, for a short time period but he's a rigger and his name is Andy Schmidt. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing great Ethan. So uh, first question as always, who are you? Well, I'm Andy. Uh I am a rigger, as you said, uh, among other hats that I wear. But uh, professionally, I've been uh, rigging uh, and rigging people for 20-ish something years. Uh, um, I, uh, I currently live, I just moved to uh, Brattleboro, Vermont. Uh, and I was living uh, in Las Vegas before then, uh, working... At uh, a few of the shows in Vegas, and um, you know, uh, the shows in Vegas aren't going to be opening in the next couple of weeks, at least. So uh, I got a job offer with the uh, New England Center for Circus Arts to be their facilities manager and rigging manager, and uh, it sounded like a nice change of pace because I've been living in Vegas for a while and I missed the color green a great deal. And uh, Vermont, it's got lots of pretty colors. I was going to say right now, it's probably more orange and yellow and red than green. Uh, yeah, it's getting there. It's very pretty. Uh, I, uh, I'm i really enjoying Vermont. We've been here about uh, just under a month. Uh, so uh, it's all very new yet. But uh, my son and wife uh, really love it. And uh, that means I love it too. Sweet. So you and I met actually through uh, a mutual friend of ours, Eric Rouse, um, back when this uh, stupid pandemic started back in April, May-ish. Um, you actually did one of Eric's webinars um, talking about aerial performance as well as uh, several other topics. Yeah. Um, and that's how you and I actually ended up meeting uh, more than just tangentially names floating around in the industry. Um, so this is exciting for me because I actually, unlike some of our guests, don't know much about your background. So I get to ask all these questions and, and find out new information, which is cool. How did you get started in the industry? Oh, uh, well, I uh, was having more fun in the theater in high school than I was having in the classroom. Um, and I think that's uh, maybe like a common way that we all kind of fall into this. Like we, we have an early experience in life that is uh, enjoyable. And uh, I definitely found it's, I got to think back now about, you know, it was a little while ago, but uh, uh, I just, I remember feeling comfortable in that I could be myself and then also just drawn to the, the, technology of it like i performed as well uh but uh you know i was just as having just as much fun building the sets and like in my high school we had a old uh 
uh, rheostat dimmer with like the 12 different arms that you had to push with like two two hands and three feet uh and uh i yeah i was uh that's how i got started i went you know to college barely and uh i was gonna major in something uh like physics or something and i wandered down to the theater department and uh said hi i'm andy and you know, I, you know, I'm not doing much in my physics classes right now. Is there anything going on here? And, oh, maybe like six weeks later, I realized, yeah, I'm not going to be a physics major. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. What, um, so you finished college, you didn't finish college. I, I'm leaving that kind of bag. Um, post academia. What was your first, uh, well, now I'm revising my question. I was going to say, what was your first paid gig? But certainly there are opportunities to get paid. But what was, uh, what was, what was the path after you finished school? Uh, well, I guess I forgot a step. I actually, my first paid gig was in high school. And there was a, uh, uh, an interesting vocational education program in my county in Michigan, Kalamazoo County where uh all of the schools in the county they could uh uh it, there was a vocation exchange program so like not every school had an auto shop but if you wanted to do that you could drive down to vicksburg and take auto shop for your last period of high school and uh into the you know late afternoon uh they started a state champ program at the comstock community auditorium and uh i uh went through that and there was actually it was actually a roadhouse as well and they did um they teched in some smaller touring shows uh and so i did some stuff like that and at my first paid cue uh as a professional technician in the mid 90s was uh to uh like open the main rag and uh nice. i'll never forget it because i didn't get a standby all i got was like i don't know like the the performer or whoever started the show started the show without any cue or warning so it was basically like fly the main fly the main <laughs> so i ran over and i unlocked the lock and i reached up as hard as like as, as tall as i could and i grabbed the front rope and i hauled it in as hard as i could <laughs> and uh yeah and then as i was like you know, adrenaline rush of pulling in the main. <laughs> stop, 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 stop. I, uh, I didn't bury the baton, um, but uh, I did get it probably more than halfway in uh, before I flew the, the curtain out the right direction. And uh, that was my very first view as a professional. Uh, I have a, a similar story of my f freshman year of college. Uh, the Majestic Theater was home at the time to a ballet school's Nutcracker performance. And uh, Emerson used to have a policy that if you rented the Majestic Theater, you had to have a percentage of the staff had to be Emerson's students. Yeah. Um, so I was on the fly crew. So amongst other things, we had a, a snow bag and you spent five minutes just moving that pipe up and down, up and down. Talk about a cardio workout. <laughs> but... At the end of Act One, the uh, 
the dancers, the male dancer had the female dancer above his head with one hand in a, in a pose and they'd stop and the curtain would come down. And, you know, halfway through our performances, I, uh, I pulled the wrong rope. I didn't, I went far out and I gritted the mane. And for those who don't do theater rigging, typically when you say you gritted something, you take it all the way up to the batten is at the grid. If you do it improperly, you actually just wedge it up there. You know, it hits something in the wire rope fittings, maybe hit the, the loft box and get jammed. Something happens and makes a big clank. So like you did, you pull the rope, you haul butt, it gritted. I instantly knew what I did. Meanwhile, we still have the dancer sitting there not moving. I get up, you know, I, I get over and I'm like, all right, I got to fix this. So now I pull the the near the inline. Of course, it's not moving. I mean, the thing is wedged. And so I ended up grabbing the rope and putting my feet above my body on the track system on one of the cross pieces. And I just put my back into it, you know, grabbed the rope, pushed, and I pulled as hard as I could. And I actually got it free. And with a lot of force, it landed on my head on the deck, <laughs> knocked myself out almost sitting there going, okay, I got it moving. Why are there stars? Then I realized I really got it moving. So now it's coming in at a really fast speed. And it was a big main. So once you got it moving, it moved. And it's like, oh, I got to stop this thing. So I got up just in enough time to slow it down. And uh, when I finally, finally locked it off, the technical director at the time, a guy named Brian Richardson, had just made it over and was lighting me up. What the hell did you do? Yada, yada. And just up one side and down the other. And you learn that lesson pretty quick. That's the only time I've ever done it. So, uh, Yeah, I don't think I've ever pulled the wrong rope uh, since on a counterweight set. Uh, I've been through the Majestic uh, in the early aughts with um, a show, a dance show I toured with called Roman Jewels. Uh, with a company in Philadelphia, uh, Rennie Harris Pure Movement. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, he is uh, doing some fundraising right now to do a, uh, a revamp of it or a, uh, I don't know, to, to mount it again, to do some more shows. Uh, and uh, it was really, uh, I don't know if you were still around then and maybe caught it or heard of it, but it was really a very special show. Uh, it's in, you know, like Black Dance History Books. And, uh, it was, uh, I was still pretty young when I did it. I was in my early twenties and it was a very, uh, big deal in my career, I guess, uh, had a big influence on me. And also like, you know, to be like 23 or 24 and be the guy in charge of a touring dance show is kind of like, well, I didn't really have, I, I, I should have had more of a, an imposter syndrome cause I was kind of an imposter, but you know, I made it work and we had a lot of fun. So how did you land that gig? How did that come about? So you were in school, you, you bailed on physics, you, yeah. you joined, you joined, and this is a joke that we use all the time. You joined the circus yep. and started doing theater. How did you end up on, in that position of being in charge on the road? Um, it's one thing, you know, my, my professional trajectory went the, the corporate industrial direction. I ended up working for a company right out of college. Um, I didn't do a lot of touring in the traditional theater or concert sense. Um, 
how did you end up getting in that? Because that, I would assume, tends to, I think people believe that is the majority thing of theater people that they start, you know, in entertainment and then they go out on tour and that's where you learn everything and then you settle down and get a, a real job. Um, so how did that process work for you? Well, I that's the question. I don't really feel like I've settled down for a real job yet, but uh, maybe it'll happen eventually, I suppose. Uh, There's a big difference between Comstock Community Auditorium in South, uh, you know, South Michigan to uh, touring into the Majestic Theater in Boston. Um, when I was in college, uh, there was, we had a internship program that I in, did an internship. A semester in Philadelphia and uh, I um, we took classes and then we interned and so I interned at the Wilma Theater on Broad Street and uh, I uh, also interned at the Painted Bride Art Center which was in uh, Old City at the time and uh, you know both of those were amazing experiences for me I uh, I met uh, I made lifelong friends uh, and, uh, I made, uh, you know, I met people in the industry that I have still, you know, talked to and worked with today. I met, uh, Bill Sapsis and I met Mike Sapsis back then, uh, in the late nineties and in, in Philadelphia, uh, working in theater there. So but my first season at the Wilma after college, I went back and I got like a I forget what they called it, but it was like a professional sort of lowering, low paid, uh, entry level technician job. And I did a bit of everything. I ran shows and I did all the load ins and I, uh, yeah, uh, it's like an assistant technical director kind of role. Um, and at the end of the season, they had a couple rentals for dance companies and the, the production manager, Neil Kuttner, he, uh, he asked me to be the, like the rental rep, the, the guy in charge for those. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, I did, it was great. And the first one of the two was, uh, the show Rennie Harris, Pure Movement and Roman Jewel. And it was the, uh, the world premiere. And, uh, it was, a, it was a good time. It was, the uh, it was, there were things about it that were very new to me. Like it's not like sitting in tech for a week, getting every little moment of the, the, the cues exactly right. And then the stage manager calls in the same way every night. Like, you know, it was a lot uh, more uh, seat of the pants. And also, like, the, the product, like the, the, the art of it was amazing. Uh, you know, virtuosic uh, breakdancing and hip-hop dancing and uh, virtuosic uh, uh, turntablism, uh, scratching records and uh, rap and hip-hop. And it's just... Uh, I don't know, like just if, if, if that story had ended there for me and I just did that once, I would still have felt like lucky to be a part of it. Well, uh, maybe it didn't seem like much later. Like I would say probably six weeks later, I get a call from uh, Rennie's company manager who had kind of gotten in over her head, not on purpose, but she had kind of gotten voluntold that she was going to be the stage manager for one of the first gigs, uh, which was at the New Holland Arts and Ideas Festival. And uh, she called me and said, hey, uh, Andy, 
what do you, you want to come up to uh, Connecticut and uh, stage manage this thing? And, uh, well, I said, yeah. And so I ran up there on the train and uh, got involved in it and made that first hectic show happen. And uh, then I just went on the road with them. So that's how I ended up there. Nice. So were you stage managing when you came through the, the Majestic? Yeah, yeah. Uh, stage, I guess it would, it would be more... I did the, I was production managing, you know, I kind of did the schedule, the advance, the everything, but the sound, we had a a sound guy. I I was doing the lights. uh, And then, yeah, like kind of corralling the talent and uh, making sure that uh, we had a way to get the luggage to the airport and uh, the, uh, you know, the, all the, made sure the costumes got cleaned. So uh, a little bit of everything, but. uh, Which is probably more common than not in terms of on smaller tours, you know, resources are not as plentiful as they are on the big, big shows. So everyone has multiple jobs and you do what you have to do to get the, the, the event done, the show done and everyone pitches in. It's a team effort. Yeah. And they were really, uh, it, we toured with a lot of people on that show. Like I think twenty something, not quite thirty, but there was a lot of people on stage. And their previous touring, they had there was probably a company of uh, eight with uh, one uh, technician type person, and then one person that was sort of more company manager. Uh, and so they were th- this this bigger show was a very successful growth for the for Rennie and the company. Uh, yeah. You know, that's it. The thought just popped in my head of maybe it's not that different on uncertain shows from the concert side. Um, I have the perception and maybe I'm unfounded on this, that on the concert side, lighting designers, a majority of lighting designers, when they design a concert, they spend the time touring with it. And maybe it's, Maybe that's on smaller shows. Definitely on the theater side that designers typically design and then it's the production stage manager, the stage manager and the master electrician who are responsible for reproducing that design as they tour. Um, certainly, obviously, on on very large concerts, the LD is not the programmer, not necessarily in, in traveling with the show. So Maybe that's changed over the years, but in my head, theater was a little different in that aspect of once you're out of tech, once it starts moving, then you know it's it's different people's responsibility for maintaining that artistic vision and and doing that. Well, I don't know. the term Maybe. stage manager means so many different things in different corners of our industry. You know, like a certainly. You know, a stage manager in theater is very different than wh- who you would say is the stage manager uh, at an arena show, a rock show. Uh, and I've also found that, like, the duties of the stage manager are very different. Not very different, but subtly different from my experience in Vegas and the, the, the spectacle shows there. Uh, you know, they, uh, like, the regional theater stuff I did, the, you know, the stage manager would call all the light cues and all the sound cues and all that. Well, uh in Vegas, that would be very rare. 
that they, and and my experience in big tops that the stage manager didn't have anything to do with the lighting cues because uh, they were too busy with primarily calling the automation cues. Right. So did you you call them spectacle shows? Yeah, uh, mega shows. I, I like that. I like that term. Yeah. I mean, it is. It, Steve Wynn is very well known for recognizing that the shows that he would have in his properties were about creating people wanting to see that show, getting them in the building. And then, you know, Hey, if they spend some money on slots while they're waiting even better, um, it yeah. is a spectacle. It is designed to draw people's attention and, and attend that show so that you can then get their money. Um, so I kind of like, I like that description. Yeah. I mean, they're the, Vegas shows are were I mean went, will be again but for right now, uh yeah they they are they're something else uh they're di- different in scale and uh energy than anything any other corner of the industry that I, I've been in. Um, so let's let's talk about that path from touring to how long did you tour were there any other opportunities before you ended up going to vegas uh yeah i mean i uh i think back now uh the the the, with rennie the 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 dance company we went uh to europe and we went to hawaii and all over the states and then i left that to do uh some not touring stuff uh a production company job in Philadelphia. And uh, let's see what else I do. I ran a rock club for a little while. I uh, was involved with the Philadelphia Fringe Festival as a technical director for uh, many years in the early aughts. Uh, And I freelance technical direction. And that took me through like most of my 20s. And in my late 20s, I got kind of some wanderlust and wasn't really sure what the next step for me was career wise. And, uh, I, uh, I didn't want to look back in five years and see myself sitting on the same bar stool, wondering what I'd done with myself for five years. Uh, and I remember even thinking about it that way to myself at the time. Uh, and, uh, some events happened and led me to Las Vegas and I was kind of naive, uh, thinking like, I'm, a, I'm good at what I do. I'm going to show up in Vegas and get a job. There's lots of jobs. Uh, and uh, I couldn't really get my foot in the door on any of the Cirque shows. I ended up taking a rigging uh, job with an AV company, uh, doing uh, corporate meetings and uh, did the World Series of Poker and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, that job was soul-sucking. Uh, it wasn't a good fit for me. And... Uh, I know it wasn't a good fix. Eventually I got fired and, uh, it was good timing because, uh, I had, uh, I'd met, made some new friends in Vegas that were in the circus and, uh, one of them, the gazillionaire, he, uh, sent me a text message saying, Hey, Kuza needs riggers. And I had just, uh, gone to see Kuza in Philadelphia. I drove <laughs> with, uh, my friend, uh, Jimmy Slonina got the job as one of the clowns on uh, Kuza. He was in Larev and he uh, he went and joined the show. And his wife, uh, Robin, 
uh, went to join him and she was driving across country and she needed uh, someone to go with her. So I was like, sure, I'll drive to Philadelphia and fly back. And uh, I got to see my first big top circus show at the time. And uh, it was amazing and kind of enthralling and a different, way different energy than the Vegas shows. And uh, went back stage and drank beer with the technicians and my future boss, uh, Remy, uh, showed me around and showed me all the cool rigging on Kuza. And uh, yeah, and then like I w- soon I was out of work in Vegas and got the, uh, the <laughs> got told to apply on Kuza. And I didn't end up getting a rigging job. I got a swing tech job. Uh, and I uh, went, uh, went, ran away with the circus. I have uh, quite a few friends from my college days who um, in the, the mid-90s were some of the first people to, to go and work with Cirque as they were overtaking Vegas. And one of them, I'll name drop him, uh, Jeff Rubenstein, Ruby. Um, his first job was, I believe, on O. And the reason why he was able to get the position is they were looking for electricians who had their scuba diving certification Yeah, because they needed people who could scuba dive and check out the lighting fixtures that were underwater. Um, and uh, he had that and got a job there and um, quite a few years working on that show and then moved to different positions. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a very creative company with a lot of interesting things. And they've done some, uh, I think one thing that they, my perception did very well is training of new employees. And again, I've never worked for them. I know a lot of people who have, I, I know that they used to have a large turnover in terms of some of the, the lower positions uh, they would at USITT, they'd have their booth and they would just college students yeah. apply, fill the positions. You spend a year, two years, and then you, you move on. But certain things like their use of fall arrest, uh, certain safety procedures, I think they were ahead of the curve on. And I'm certainly not saying they were perfect, but for instance, when I teach people about fall protection, talk about nets and there are not a lot of entertainment companies that use nets outside of pit nets um cirque used some very large pit nets on different projects because it was the right solution um on the arena side no one thinks about nets at all so yeah it is kind of interesting to look at some of the stuff that they were able to drive forward and, and in part i think also on the automation side for theater, you know, some of the creative ideas they came up with and things to do kind of uh, pumped resources into that. There's, wow. So someone was giving me a hard time uh, last week on a webinar saying that I love going in the weeds. It's true. So here we go. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm right there with you about, A, loving to go in the weeds, but also like Vegas is the, the crucible of uh, automation in our industry. Uh, and it was, it's been really neat for me to work with some of those guys that 
were there on O in the late nineties. And before that they were on Siegfried and Roy and man, the, I think the stuff that they were doing on Siegfried with Roy was, uh, there was no map. Like they were making it up as they go. Uh, yep. and, uh, and the other interesting thing about Siegfried and Roy was that they didn't write anything down. And I, I got later on in my career in Vegas, I was working with some of these guys that were from that era and I got a little frustrated with not getting clear directions and it was all verbal. And, and I was just like, and I would reply with an email and they would come and talk to me about it and just not quite getting it. And then someone clued me in. It's like, Oh, there that's because on Siegfried and Roy, they weren't allowed to write anything down. Like you didn't write, yeah. you didn't draw a picture of it because someone might steal that picture and now they got your trick. Yep. And there, there is, um, there is a, a parallel between, and this this is a historic parallel between circus performance, professional wrestling, and magic. Um, they're all very closely tied to each other. Pro wrestling really grew out of the circus and the traveling show, and a lot of the terminology used in pro wrestling comes from the old carnival. But a lot of it was protecting the business that you are asking people to suspend their disbelief in person. And especially like with the magician, the reason the culture is so tight about exposing the magic is because if you if you tell them what the trick is, what's the point is the mindset and and certain Vegas shows that incorporate somewhat part of illusion for their entertainment want to protect that. That is their bread and butter. And so you didn't write stuff down. You didn't tell people how things are done. And in the age of the internet, it's easy to find a lot of information. And you still have this one little corner where they hold on to stuff. They they work very hard to maintain it because it's so important to creating the experience for the audience. I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that... I see that in traditional circuits and I'll give you a great example. I'm a, uh, I'm a nerd about knots, and I've never done a hair hang act. Uh, but, uh, I'm really curious about what that life support knot is, you know, tied with human hair. And, uh, I know some riggers, uh, in Vegas, uh, that are traditional circus riggers that come from, you know, circus rigging families, they're former acrobats. And one of them, a good buddy of mine, uh, I asked him about this hair hang knot and he's like, Oh yeah, I know, I know how to do it. It's like, Oh great. Well, can you show me? Like, I'm just, you know, it's, I'm just curious. Right. And he said, no. And I, and it was, he wasn't being a jerk about it, but he's like, no, that's, that knowledge is that family's knowledge. That's their, that's what puts, uh, you know, clothes on their kids and food on the table. So I love you, Andy, but I'm not going to share that with you. Totally respected that. Um, yeah. And it can be frustrating because we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast, wanting to learn stuff and people not teaching because they were afraid of losing their spot to say, I think there's a fine line there in terms of what is a trade secret for a highly specialized thing versus general knowledge. Um, so that's an interesting 
perspective on it or, or, you know, outlook on it. The weeds part I was going to mention, which you started to say where Vegas was so, uh, such a big driving force in automation. It has to do with two things, the need and the financial ability to develop it. And if you look at uh, Rick Boychuk's book, uh, Nobody Looks Up, The History of Counterweight Rigging in North America, um, you're welcome, Rick. The, I'll give you the address for the check later. Um, he talks about a lot of the history of counterweight rigging, about how it it didn't really, what we know as counterweight rigging didn't actually grow out of hemp rigging. There are two different mechanical systems. Um, but one of the things that he discovered in his research for the first book was that a lot of Masonic lodges, Freemason lodges, had, uh, particularly Scottish Rite, had theaters. And some of the early wooden arbors and counterweight systems in America, uh, North America's, were in these Scottish Rite buildings. And a lot of them still exist today because the duty cycle was so low, they lasted. Um, And what he discovered, you know, ultimately, to make a long story short, too late, was that it's the same thing as Vegas. Scottish Rite Masons had the means, they had the financial backing, and they had the desire. They had the uh, the need to create some new technology to use for their presentations. So for those of you who are like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> Scottish Rite Masonry is a, a subgroup of Freemasons. So to join, you have to be a Mason. And their initiation process when they bring new members in for Scottish Rite is not other Masonic organizations. You participate in your own initiation process. So it's like a fraternity at a college or something. Scottish Rite does dramatic plays where you go and you watch these things. And depending on the valley, that's what they call the the individual groups. You know, the Valley of Boston has a lot of resources versus the Valley of Timbuktu may not. So that will change things. But some of the bigger cities with stronger valleys are doing shows that are on par with high-end community theater. So lighting, in Boston, we have an LED wall that I installed. Uh, Lighting, wardrobe, makeup, sound, now video in in different effects. Um, And... Part of it is creating an opportunity for for the members to do things and have fun with it and bring in new members. Um, But that history of, hey, we need counterweight rigging or we need something and paying to help develop some of the counterweight rigging uh, stuff. And part of that is some of the designers, the original designers were Masons, were a member of the organization and said, hey, we have this need. I have this idea in, in going that route. So... Usually the, the technology innovations are are the two things. You have the resources and you have the need and you, you start doing it from there and it kind of pushes things forward. The uh, it, it, I, One of the things that struck me about that book and the, the, the like some of the, those temples or uh, lodges, they're, they're like, well, now like 
in flyover country, right? They're, I was going to say the middle of nowhere, but they're like in Topeka and when Winona, Minnesota, and like places you don't yep. associate with like innovation in a niche performance technology. Uh, like I can understand like the Vienna Opera House, but you know, Winona, Minnesota. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, you know, for me, it's kind of like if you're driving down and you mentioned it before, Pennsylvania, you're driving out the PA Turnpike and you're pretty much in farm country and you run to an, uh, an interchange, an exit, and there are four hotels and there are at least 100 rooms each. And I'm like, how, who decided to put these here? Like, where is the business coming from? It's the same thing. These Masonic lodges in the middle of nowhere. And it's, it's basically driven by after large global conflicts, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, a lot of soldiers would come back and would be looking for some camaraderie or an environment that was similar to what they had been experiencing in the service. And so all fraternal organizations were, whether it's Freemasons, Knights of Columbus, Elks, Moose, you know, whatever order you want to throw a name at, all their membership went up. And then it started going back down and, and in the eighties membership went way down. So a lot of these rural communities that before had a hundred, 150, 200 members, they disappeared. And the next generation, I think in a broad stroke were termed as, you know, they're not joiners. So membership would go down and eventually you lose that knowledge and a lot of the buildings got sold and, and converted into different things. Um, and that's where you lose some of the history because the, the counterweight systems were taken out, but there are uh, quite a few older buildings that have original wooden installed counterweight systems, wood guide track, um, wood arbors, a lot of round weights, versus rectangular weights. Um, Rick Boychek is very active on Facebook with a lot of the history of different things. And it has been collecting uh, different artifacts. So he's gone into, you know, why did they start with round weights and then going to rectangular weights? And what was the first weight that was keyed to fit around the rods on an arbor and different things like that? I mean, it is kind of interesting to look at the history and and see where that development think, came from. Do you think counterweight rigging is a lost art? The reason I, I, the reason I ask is because in Vegas, uh, I came to the re realization that it was. Uh, and it, it was because I was training another rigger at the resort we were working, uh, we had a second theater and I needed to staff it. And this guy was a show rigger and which means, uh, to be honest, like he was really good at clipping carabiners and calling clears. Uh, but he had more rigging experience than that. And so I trained him up on the counterweight rigging and one of our coworkers, uh, uh like a, a technical director type said to this guy, Noah, like, you're really lucky to learn this. It's a lost art. And my, in my gut, I was like, no, it's not. And then I got to thinking about it. And like in Vegas, it is, you know, you don't. You yeah. Don't... I mean, I've, I've mentioned before using a speed square and a plumb bob as a level. 
and you could argue that's kind of a lost art. It's it, you know, everyone's like, oh, I got my laser, yeah, or I got a, a spirit level, versus you know the old school tricks. Yeah, I, I certainly understand that. I think. You know, there are, there are times where the, the KISS method comes into play, where it's, you know, is it simpler just to counterweight something? Um, I had mentioned before, and, and Rick does obviously a much better job of explaining this in his book, but there's a mechanical difference between hemp and counterweight rigging systems. And for most people, they, they look at it and say, I, I don't, think there really is a difference and it has to do with the fact that in hemp rigging you are pulling on the rope to directly move your payload up and down and you're adding weight to that rope to help balance it to make your job easier whereas technically in counterweight rigging you are moving the counterweight up and down and a secondary effect to a different system is moving your payload up and down because it is attached to the top of your counterweight, whether that's an arbor or if you were just moving a big brick up and down. So that's the mechanical difference between the two. To me, that's a distinction without much meaning. Like, and yeah, and between hemp, I love hemp rigging too. And that definitely is a lost art, but, uh, you know, to me, I remember when they when the the ETCP test was coming out, and the, my reaction to that there was two of them. There was a rigging for arenas, and there was a rigging for theaters. Was that oh, that was kind of that's kind of BS. Like, you know, r- rigging is rigging, and if you if you're gonna know how to do it, uh, you can't just say, oh, I only know how to do it in this building and not in the other building. Uh, There's not different gravity for different venues. Yeah, it's all the same gravity. I mean, I understand, you know, I understand why that decision was made and I, I, I get it, but, uh, you know, the same thing with circus rigging or performer flying, like it's, it's not fundamentally any different than hanging a flat on a batten. It's just a level of care that's needed. That's so much more important when you got people on it. And the same thing with, uh, you know, automated rigging versus, uh, you know, hand pulled rigging that the, the, the rigging of it is the same. It's the level of care that you need to understand right. the what can go wrong when you're just pushing a button. And I've always, you know, when, I, when I've taught and talked about the difference between um, rigging and then performer-based rigging or aerial performance rigging, um, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get in the discussion about design factors because it's a, a, nat- a natural discussion to go forward with. Um, and people are like, well, you have to use a different design factor when you're flying people. And my response has been, well, why? Because we're still hanging equipment above people's heads. The If, you're, it, if your sole argument is, well, when you fly a person, there's the chance of or you're increasing the chance of injury to that person. My response to that is, I don't think that's true. I think that anytime we hang anything above someone's head, whether it is moving or not, there is a risk that someone gets hurt. So you need to pay the same considerations 
to what you're doing to make sure no one gets hurt in stop. That's my opinion. Now, as he said, is is a distinction without, you know, is it semantics? Is it, you know? Well, uh, hmm. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I like that there's a sort of a different rule set for hanging, for, for ringing people, just because it puts you in like a different way of thinking about it. Uh, and it just reminds you like, Hey, you know, this, this person, uh, they, they got, you know, kids to feed and a mortgage to pay. And the, the, when you start rigging people, the, you know, when you rig a trust, the trust doesn't have emotions, right? When you're rigging, right. when you're rigging people like the, what are you talking about? Tr- trust is smile and they fine. That's true. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, where are we going with that? <laughs> well, we're just talking about the um, the difference in 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 attention that you know counterweight to automated or motorized. Um, you still, as the the operator slash installer, have a duty of care to pay attention to what you're doing and making sure it's done safely. And I brought up the design factor side of, um, you know moving towards performer flying. And I, and I'm hesitant to use that term because when we were writing the performer flying standard, there was a lot of discussion about how that standard could unintentionally affect uh, circus performance, such as silk performance or trapeze, which for most of us in the industry, we we tend to make a distinction between a performer flying effect like Peter Pan flying around stage versus a performer doing something on an apparatus, whether that's a ring, a silk, a trapeze, a giant ball, whatever it is. So we kind of try to make distinction between those two. Um, I think you guys did a good job. Uh, I think the standard... That, you know, I remember when the standard came out, the head rigger at the time on O, uh, he's like, well, that's interesting, but it doesn't apply to us. And then he also said something along the lines of, well, that's the standard is that's just a suggestion. Uh, And, you know, from his point of view, like, you know, this O had been running for 20 years at that point. And, you know, there were things about it that were decisions that were made in the late 90s that were, you know, cutting edge technology at the time. And by 20 15, 2016, they weren't the, you know, the first choice of uh, the, like the people that wrote the standard, like yourself. Uh, yeah. I, it's like asbestos. Yeah. You know, when we started using asbestos for fire protection, we didn't realize how bad it was. It wasn't done like, Oh, here's a big conspiracy. We're going to put asbestos in everything and make people sick. people sick. It's you do the best you can at the time you make, at the time, the right choices, time eventually proved, hey, you know what? New information comes to us. We reevaluate. We, we change. We, we move forward. So it's kind of the same thing with, with the ANSI standards is, you know, at some point we'll find better ways of doing things. Uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I'm really supportive of the, the whole notion behind the standards, which is uh, in a very real way, like if we don't police ourselves as an industry, 
then someone who doesn't know what we're doing is going to come in and give us some standards to follow that aren't going to be workable. Right. So uh, the fact that we that that we as an industry went that direction, uh, you know, twenty some odd years ago, is bearing fruit now. You know that that there. <laughs> There are anti-accredited standards for little details about how we make the magic happen. And without that, like, uh, you know, it, it's a lot easier when you're having a conversation with someone who doesn't know the craft to say, oh, well, we're applying this such and such standard. Everyone kind of understands what ANSI means. Uh, but uh, the in circus, there's some like legitimate discussion about how applicable the standard is. Or, and it comes down to design factor, and it's really about that 10 to 1. And the 10 to 1 design factor has kind of been in the industry way before the standard, right? But it, oh, yeah. it doesn't really help you when you're getting into category zero e-stops at 10 feet a second. Uh, you can exceed that 10 to 1 really, really easily. So it's only one part of the puzzle, but... Uh, I was having a conversation with like a European uh, circus rigger and he, his point was, well, that standard is, is going to, that 10 to one is so prominent in the standard that that is eclipsing what he argues is a better way of looking at circus loads. And uh, I, I agree with him to a certain degree, other than the fact that the standard does have language which is exceed well exceeds a 10 to 1 but it requires a more nuanced understanding and, and more math about the you know the what the loads are right and in in one of the challenges with that specific document was one we're talking about usually mechanized systems where your travel speed may be faster than what you had been able to do with traditional circus rigging. And what I mean by that is another per a person on the other end of the rope. Now you can generate some pretty fast speeds and some pretty big forces in that method as well. I'm not trying to minimize that, but there was increased risk when you motorize things. But the other area that we talked about was uh, harnesses and whether or not, you know, here's the minutia. Is a wrist strap a harness? You know, we, we wanted to address that, hey, this standard does not apply to a person who is doing a silk performance. Yeah. But what if you're doing a performance where you're in a wrist strap, where 90% of it is the performer, but if that performer got knocked out, there's a really good chance that they're hanging there by that wrist strap. So... When that topic, that actual example came up and the solution was, okay, what if we use the surface area of the harness so that we can say, listen, what we are talking about is a designed harness that goes on a person to allow them to fly across the stage like Peter Pan or the Witch and Wizard of Oz, whatever the, the application is. So there was a lot of discussion about, well, how does this affect these things and the design factor? You know, people have... I'll usually, just to get people to thinking, why is 10 to 1 good enough for performer flying? How do we know 9 to 1 isn't sufficient? Or even the standard 5 to 1? What, what was the history of coming up with 10 to 1? 
And it's a rhetorical question. There's no answer. There's no point where we can say it was X, Y, Z, and he said 10 to 1, or she said 10 to 1, or a group. It's just 5 to 1 was a standard based off of other industry organizations, ASME. And so, well, 5 to 1 for hardware, we're dealing with people, and maybe we should step that up a little. And... So it's kind of one of those interesting things to discuss. Okay, how did we come up with 10 to 1? Well, is that a one-size answer fits all? And, and the term that, that several of us have started using a lot when questions are asked is, it depends. Is 10 to 1 sufficient for this application? Yes. Is it for this one? Maybe not. And when we write the standards, we try to not be prescriptive, meaning you have to do this. We try to say... You want to be performance-based. You want to make sure that whatever hardware you select is not going to fail under the worst-case scenario that you're likely to see. And it's it's hard to project that. It's hard to write it down in specific terms and, and get it all right and not come up with situations where what you guys are trying to avoid, which is like, I mean, how do we protect from the standard being misapplied to uh, circus fabric? Which, I mean, if, if I had to spec out, uh, you know, a 10 to 1 design factor on uh, circus fabric, uh, well, I don't even know, like it would be carpet or something that thick. It just, yep. it's, not, it's not, it's not feasible, right? Um, that you mentioned that the, that it depends phrase, and I totally am with you on that. And I think that a lot of decisions you end up making about rigging, especially and a higher end rigging circuits rigging and not just vanilla sort of stuff is going to be open to interpretation. There's got to be a gray area, but I had a great conversation with a, another former circus delay rigger uh, recently last week. And uh, where he kind of was going, he went back and he must be bored because he was going back and watching some of the, um, the series that I did with Eric and Jonathan and uh he was like, yeah, that whole it depends thing. It was kind of a funny gag, but uh, he what he said was he didn't like it. Uh, and why he didn't like it is that uh, that you need black and white to start. You need to understand. You need to, to before you can understand the nuance of it, the gray area. You need rules, and if all the answers are it depends, then it it sort of makes the rules seem less like a, a strict roadmap or a way to get there safely and more like just sort of suggestions that I can maybe think about breaking and, you know, who, what, you know, when do I get the degree that says I can say now say, eh, I can live with a four to one on this. Like who, who says that uh, to you? So his point was more like, well, and he was coming from a place of like educating, uh, co-workers or even uh right. performers about the how we do what we do and he's like no nah, like that, that it depends like it's fun for the nerds to get into it but you got to leave it out when it's just like trying to explain the basics absolutely and, the, and there's a certain component of it which is oversimplifying a complex system to build in design factor so that you don't have a, a failure and you're building that design factor in to the operational side, not the mechanical side. So it's, okay, does this person have enough knowledge to 
uh, as, as you said, change the design factor or use a different design factor on a widget. Um, I, I certainly agree with that, that, that thought process. And there is a kind of starting point. And that's a lot of time what like OSHA regulations or, or AHJ documents, whether that's building code or fire code, life safety, whatever, um, kind of gives us that rule. It, it was interesting. I was having a discussion this morning with a friend of mine. We're working on a document. And I was talking about with the fall arrest standard, one of the things that we learned pretty quickly was there's a mindset in the entertainment industry of trying to bend the regulations and slash laws to apply to us properly versus us changing our work environment to actually comply with the laws. And whether or not we like it, if it's a law or it's an ordinance, you have to follow it. And there are repercussions if you don't. So maybe changing the thought process a little of, well, how do we, we make the law apply to what we've been doing versus how do we apply what we're doing to the law and conform? And for instance, we were talking about multiple, we're talking about rescue and whether or not you can actually have your rescuers working at height, which is a fairly common mindset of an arena show, let's say, where you have a bunch of upriggers. Well, if some of them, multiple of them are trained for rescue, chances are if one person falls, you have other people who can affect the rescue. But there's an assumption that the people in the air working actually have the uh, wide view to say of the situation to make the right choices on the most effective method of rescue. And it's an interesting thing. And it also technically doesn't comply with OSHA because those other individuals, even though they're not exposed to the exact same fall risk as the victim, they're still working at height. They're still exposed to other risk, which you're not supposed to do by OSHA. So the mindset that we normally take is, well, how do we change it so that we can have those people in the air be part of the rescue team? Why? Maybe it is a better choice to have the person to determine the rescue on the ground. You can have resources that are in the air, but is that person on the ground maybe uh more suitable to make decisions about the corrective course without putting other people at more risk to affect that rescue. So it's a, it is kind of an interesting thing as we create these documents of how do we create something that people are going to use and not try to work around, you know, it, Hey, we followed the ANSI standard because we can check a box that says we followed it. Well, what's the point of doing that? Just check the box and don't follow it. If you, if you want to change your work environment and make it sef safer and better, then you actually have to put effort into following the document or the intent of the document to get the better results. I, uh, I think that you're, you're probably going to do a great job writing the standard uh, and that it'll be an improvement to the overall culture. But as far as OSHA goes... Um, I don't know if they've corrected it yet, but when they re updated the platforms and walking section, which has a uh, language about fall arrest connectors uh, yeah. in the law, right? It says that uh, 
what they're trying to do is say that, you know, carabiners should have ANSI rated gates on them, 16 kilonewton rated gates, but they said proof loaded to 16 kilonewtons. That's the law. You want me to follow that? Do you? Like, do I need to go out and buy carabiners where somebody proof loaded to 50% of breaking to 16 kilonewtons on the gate? Or is it okay if I just go and get the carabiners that where the gate will break at 16 kilonewtons? And I guess the point there for me is that the people writing the law don't have the, the knowledge that we do. Right. And in that respect, I, I kind of forgive the rigor hubris about we know better than the, than, than the OSHA guy. Uh, but even as that comes out of my mouth, like I, I hate that attitude of like, I know better. I don't need an engineer. I, I, I'm good enough. Like I, I got it. Uh, well, that it, I think that brings up the, the exact point that we're both trying to make, which is we improve the circumstance by creating documents that we can use that hopefully, and, and I'm going to mention something in a second about ANSI standards that hopefully gets uh, more use that is specific. Like you said, we know our industry, we know what we're trying to do. Let's create a document that satisfies the concern of life safety, but does not negatively affect the performance we're trying to create. ANSI standards have no weight of law unless they're adopted by an AHJ, whether that's a local administrator or OSHA. However, we were discussing uh, Chicago Fly House had uh, one of their webinars last week about the Indiana State Fair uh, collapse. Oh, yeah. And in that discussion, someone had mentioned where there are no laws regulating the building or the, the temporary structure at the time. And there weren't. There was actually uh, that outdoor structure was specifically exempted from the adoption of building code for the state fair event. However, when OSHA fined the State Fair Commission, the IOTC local, and the vendor who owned the roof, they cited E1.21, which is the standard for outdoor structures. Yeah. Wasn't law at the time, but what OSHA basically said under their general duty clause was, there is an ANSI standard for what you were doing created by a, a accredited group. You knew it existed and you did not follow that ANSI standard. That's easy for us to say. You did not create a environment free from recognized hazards. And, and that's what they find them on. And those fines stood. Um, the dollar value may have changed, but the, the findings remained the same. So there's an ANSI standard for something. Even if you think it is the worst document in the world, and you don't follow it, and you unfortunately have a failure of something, you're going to get nailed on that, both in the OSHA investigation as well as the potential civil cases where they're going to say, hey, there's an ANSI standard. And as we said in the episode with Chris Schmidt, an engineering friend of his said, defend your choice. Yeah. And that's it. And I hate, like, I refuse to rig that way. I don't rig to protect liability. I don't say, oh, I want to be covered if something fails. I rig so nothing fails. Now, do I always succeed? No. 
<laughs> I mean, if we're going to be honest, sometimes you, you have failures. Um, but hopefully they're really small failures and, and not part of a chain reaction. But it, you shouldn't be rigging to say, how do I make sure I don't get sued? You should be rigging so that nothing fails and that everyone goes home at the end of the day. And again, that may be semantics, but for me, I think it's an important mindset um, to make sure that everyone gets to go home. A really smart sound guy that I know told me why he doesn't do rigging. And it's because, as he put it, he would wake up in the middle of the night and think, did I do that right? Did I mount that shackle or did I... Uh, you know, safety off that thing or, and he couldn't, uh, he kind of just couldn't get over that and set it aside and just said, you know what, rigging is not for me. Uh, I'm going to stick with sound. Uh, Cause like I asked him to help me do something and he's like, ah, it is not my comfort zone. Um, you were talking about rescue. I think that the, to me, having gone through some emergency procedures, the, and planned for them, the, the key thing is to understand that there's got to be a plan that one person has got to be the shot caller and not, you can't, you can't go through that moment with, uh, you know, decision-making by committee. You got to have a script and one person needs to make the decisions uh, that the script calls for. And then just to, to understand that it's never going to follow the script. You're always going to have details about the the rescue or the uh, reaction to an in, you know, injury or whatever it is that you have to trigger the plan, execute the plan, but don't be married to it because it's never going to be perfect. You're never like Joe isn't going to say the exact right thing according to the script. And that's OK. As long as the guy calling the shots and everyone else involved understands that the way we all need to communicate. Um, and I don't, I don't have a problem with riggers in the air being the guy that's going to do the rescue. I think that that is appropriate to me that you should have enough knowledge about working at height the way we do to get your buddy down because you can't just wait for the fire department. Correct. Yeah, and, and and that was the discussion. I'm not involved in the, the creation of this particular document, but my friend was, and we were just talking about, you know, different components of it. And and that's one that he happened to bring up. He's a uh, an OSHA instructor, and he was talking about, you know, the, the issue is OSHA very clearly says that the members of the rescue team can't be exposed to uh at height risk until they're executing the rescue. And so how do we, how do we navigate this? Because my argument in, in the way I've designed things, especially on roof structures outdoor where access up to that working level is not stairs or ladder, but is climbing the structure itself. It's about time. You want to get this person down as efficiently and safely and as fast as possible. Well, why waste time having someone climb up the structure to go do the rescue when you have other people who are up there? Yeah. I think that's a, a valid argument. But I also recognize the other side that says, again, why are we assuming that those people who are up in the air, even if they have all the technical training, are the ones who are 
in the best mental capacity to effectively execute that rescue. So that and, and and that's an interesting aspect, which is the person in the air is already exposed to more risk. So they have a heightened sense of caution, let's say. I don't want to fall myself. And you just watch your coworker, friend, all the above, whatever, fall and may or may not be injured. Um, is that person mentally, even though, again, they have the technical skills and have done the training, are they mentally prepared for the additional risks that they now have to take in that rescue? And that was kind of the, the other side of the coin to say. Now, I think there's some middle ground. I think there's a way to get to where we want to be, which is you can have people working on a structure or in the grid or whatever the case may be and be part of that rescue team. But I think, like you said, the importance is to have a clear person in charge. And maybe that person in charge is not on the structure, is, you know, that that 50,000 foot view and is not exposed to increased risk because they're on the ground to say, here's the right choice. The most effective way to do this is, hey, we have this lift over here that can reach where that person is, and that's the way to do it versus exposing people to more climbing risk, whatever the case may be. It's an, it's a, and I'm not suggesting that there's an answer on either side. It's what we're going through to create this document and, and, and try to develop an answer, but it's an interesting discussion. I can tell you from my personal experience, and I, I've never had to do uh, like a worker rescue, uh, but I have dealt with um, non-training uh, performer rescues, like a live rescue of performers. And uh, the my experience viscerally from doing them was that that initial moment of shock, like an event just happened. And now I have to do something. What got my butt moving to go do that thing was instinct and training. And uh, I didn't, in that half second, I didn't have to think, oh, crap, what do I do now? Because somewhere in the back of my brain, it was filed away. Like, you got to move. You got to go get there right now. And to, to in going through that, it, process it just really drove home to me the importance of routine training and it wasn't like this we did this particular rescue scenario like the week before it was probably like a year and a half before but i had retained enough of it to know that those that what my action needed to be right then and it got me through that initial moment of shock and you know, I was on second and I was on stage in four seconds. Uh, and it felt like five minutes to me. But when my, you know, my, my buddies were uh, telling me I did a good job later, it's like, oh, yeah, watch the video. Four seconds. Uh, so, you know, I don't think that relying, I would much rather rely on that guy uh, that I'm a union brother with up in the steel day in and day out to come over and help me than to wait for the fire department or to wait for some guys that they're, they're going to take five minutes to get there and then they're not going to have the same uh, level of comfort out on the beam. Like they may be great rope access techs or whatever they do. Uh, but, you know, uh, the guy 
that is up there on the beams with me, he's knowing, he knows me and he knows exactly what I'm going through right now. And so I think that they should be involved. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that one of the things I said to my friend is I don't think enough people, when they look at something, ask why. So if we look at OSHA and they say, you're not allowed to be exposed to the fall risk, why? What is their thought process? What is their rationale? There's this interesting thing where, and it's not just our industry that does this. Every single industry does this. We're unique. We're different. Yeah. The rules don't apply to us because we're different. We're different because we have performers. We're different because we have a definitive timeline that we have to finish a task because there's an audience waiting to get in. We're different because of this. And the, the, Failure point of that logic is, but we're all dealing with people. The one commonality is we're all dealing with people and people tend to behave sometimes um, in certain patterns. And so I think where hopefully we end up with is saying, okay, we have a unique application within our industry where the rules that are established by OSHA are not necessarily the most effective response in this application. And here's what we propose as an effective response. And here's the data to back it up. Here's the knowledge of the people who are working in that environment, bring to the table and to be able to effectively do this and here's the data that says that we're not increasing the risk to other individuals. And if we can get to that point, then OSHA says, okay, we agree. Because that there are applications, and, and I'll have to dig some up, where you can actually argue with OSHA that wearing fall arrest creates more of a hazard than it solves. Now, that's pretty extreme because the issue with fall arrest is you're already falling. So yeah. maybe we should say, fall protection or fall restraint, where you can say fall restraint causes more of a hazard than not having it. You can argue that. And if you can document it, you can be successful. Again, you have to have all your ducks in a row to do that. So that's ultimately where our industry documents are trying to go is how, again, 1.39, which is the fall arrest, we weren't trying to create anything new. What we were trying to do is say, how do we apply the current rules to a structure that is barely designed to hold the payload. I mean, I How do we example of uh, applying fall protection, uh, industry industrial fall protection in circuits, right? Yeah. And uh, the a circus rigger saw Kiva and he called us out on something where he's like, "Well, you know, when the performer is climbing the ladder to the tight wire." In the show, they don't need a harness. But when they come out in intermission in stage blacks to go up there and take the balancing poles down, now they're a worker and they need to be in fall protection. And I thought it was a really interesting example of applying a certain logic that is complete. I completely agree with that logic, except that the conclusion of that logic is illogical. You know, why can I, why do I have to say to uh, Roberto Quiros that you're safe to climb this ladder when the lights are on, but you're not safe to climb it anymore 
when uh, you know the lights are dark and you're surrounded by technicians. Uh, it would not have been an enforceable decision. But like, I think that 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 in my little niche of the industry, we end up facing that where it's like, well, the performer is going to get to the performing area somehow. And if they're exposed to a fall, a fall hazard while they're doing that, you know, we should have some protection for them. But now they're out in the area and they're going to do their performance and they go in, onto stage and they do that performance. Well, you can't do a silk act wearing an SRL. Right. But you're still an employee. So OSHA applies, right? Yeah. And, and, and that's where you get into this argument of, well, has that employee been trained to deal with that very specific risk, which you would argue that as a performer on a silk, they have been, yeah. to, re- to effectively reduce or mitigate the risk. Um, yeah, it, it, and, and that's that, it's that murky gray area. Now, I would sit here and say, I actually think it enhances the perception of the audience of the risk. Um, if you have them wear a harness and climb up and take the harness off and you're like, this is so dangerous. We have to wear a harness to get up there, but then we're going to walk on this piece of wire rope. But that's me just selling it. Um, uh, no, nah, abs- absolutely. But it's the same thing of railings in high school theaters. You know, sure. it OSHA, building code is very clear that um, it is the performer side of raised platforms that you can be exempted from railings on. Um, and same thing for stairs, but until that performer is trained about that risk, you're supposed to have railings. So it, there's this interesting aspect of going through that training and that knowledge of that risk. And in, in one of the things you brought up, which is what makes this so complicated, I choose working for an employer to climb something without protection. Well, if I fall, let's hypothetical. I'm single. My family died in a car crash. I have no relatives. I have no friends. No one likes me. It's just me and my cat. This is and a I really climb, story. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's going to get worse. Cause I, <laughs> I go to the, I go to the warehouse and I got to get something off the top shelf. That's 20 feet tall. And I climb the shelving unit and I fall and I, I split my head open. And people say, well, who did that affect? You know, that guy and that poor cat. Except it affects everyone. It affects the people who had to witness it and their uh, mental health. It affects the insurance of that employer who um, may have, you know, done proper training and provided all the right tools. But that's still an incident that happened for that employer. So their insurance goes up. Um, let's say the person fell and wasn't killed, but is out of work. Now your unemployment, uh, your workers' comp insurance is going to go up. There's all these other things. And then we get to, as we were discussing, what if you're in a situation where you make a choice and now other people have to risk their lives to rescue you? Now you're exposing them to risk. And it, it just, it's so much more complicated than just, well, it's my own choice. How does it affect everyone? And so the law has said, well, listen, when you're an employee, that those are the rules. And it does bring up the interesting aspect of 
That's why a lot of people choose to be classified as independent contractors. Now are we going to learn from the whole pandemic that, geez, I was an independent contractor, which means I don't get certain benefits of being an employee like unemployment. And what is that worth? It's a very complicated and layered situation that there's no clear answer to. Well, but it's, it's something that you and I are used to because it's, it's our world, right? But this idea that rigging is not regulated or it's self-regulated is a, it's kind of a, it's kind of intuitive to me and probably to you coming up in our industry where we d we learn how to do it from our peers and you know maybe we read some books or we talked to industry leaders and we learned stuff but we learned it like it wasn't like the you know there wasn't a rule book to follow you know uh it was oral history and it's uh you know we learned as we as we did shows we learned the best way to do it right and hopefully didn't make bad mistakes uh i in my experience here coming to the new england center for circus arts uh you know stepping away from this uh you know vegas world and coming here and then the uh we have an interim executive director uh and uh she and I, in our first meeting, uh, she was really shocked to learn that there's no laws about the rigging that I'm responsible for here in this facility. There's no, uh, there's no like OSHA guidelines on how to rig a point to rehearse your circus number. And even the, and like, ANSI doesn't even really cover it. Like we talked about the performer flying standard that's applicable, but it doesn't, it's not a guidebook on how to do it. And it also doesn't completely apply to all the little things about what we're doing here at this, at the circus school. Uh, and so she just was like, well, what's, what's the authority? Cause her background is sort of in uh, administrating uh, uh, municipalities. Uh, so like running city, local government uh, and she was really kind of flummoxed by it. like, what's, what's the authority that I appeal to? Like, how do I, what are the building codes? Like, how does this, how do I apply rules to this art? Like, how do, how do you do it safely? Cause that's her approach. Like, Oh, if I'm going to design a, a playground and I want the playground to be safe, well, there's a book I can turn to and then I can talk to the vendor and he's going to look at the codes and he's not going to be able to sell me anything that doesn't meet these codes. And then there's going to be a County inspector that comes out and says, Oh, it's meeting the codes. Right. Well, there ain't, there ain't poop like that for a circus, right? Right. Yeah. And, uh, and they're probably, I don't know. I, I, I feel like as much as I want there to be, I understand that there probably won't ever be because it's so niche. It's so small and circus is risk. Like circus arts are risk. It's one of the reasons why circus arts aren't as entertaining on video. Because you're not there experiencing a human being taking that risk, right? Right. So, in a way, like uh, making it safer with rules is making it less entertaining. Yeah, and 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 it brings up this interesting thing of you know, what if the stuntman on a movie set is killed doing a stunt? There's probably going to be you know, there will be a lawsuit from the family saying you didn't do everything you could to mitigate this risk. But 
as in terms of did you violate any laws assuming you did everything you could do to reduce the risk and it was as i've said to people an actual accident versus an incident then you know the law is going to say yeah it it was a risk they knew it 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 happened it's unfortunate um and a lot of the performer based stuff is going to be that it's done for entertainment the artist acknowledges the risks we do the best we can to to mitigate them to make sure that they don't but as you said on the circus performance stuff part of the reason why we watch and we're so entertained by someone walking on a three-quarter inch wire rope 50 feet up in the air is the fact that we're like i hope they don't fall but man if they fall that's gonna that that's gonna be interesting (laughs) you know you, you can't deny that part of your brain is saying they could fall. I could watch someone die. That's scary. Or that that elicits an emotion, which is what they're trying to do. They're trying to elicit an emotion from the audience. There was yeah. a, a number on, on CUSA, the Wheel of Death Act, that uh, we, we had people that had enough of that visceral reaction to how dangerous it was that they, they would leave or they weren't comfortable with it. Uh, and uh, that was really interesting to be a part of that. And to be, it was like the first time in my career that I was involved with a, uh, an event, a spectacle that was giving the audience any sort of reaction other than pleasure, you know, and to like that visual, visual degree. But like for me, seeing that guy up on the wire, right? Like I can picture myself up there on a wire. Uh, in my mind's eye, I can picture it and I know how scared I would be. So I think that's part of the impression of the, the, yeah. what's so impressive about it. It's like that guy can do that and he's not scared. He's got a smile on his face and he's dancing. Uh, what, what do you think the biggest challenge from a hardware standpoint is for the circus rigging industry? Do you think, huh? Do you think that if there was, and and we're starting to see this, do you think if there were manufacturers that came out with products that were quote unquote approved for circus rigging, that that would help uh, try to create some of the structure we're looking for? Uh, Possibly. And I'll give you an example uh, where I think that, um, a standard that's specific to circus would be really helpful. Um, and that is for swivels. Uh, there's only, there's no standard for like climbing swivels and we use them all over the place in circus. And really all you can go by is reputation of the manufacturer. And as the circus has exploded, circus arts have exploded as a leisure activity in the last 10, 15 years. You know, you can get things that look just like a pestle swivel on Amazon for a third the price. And if you're dumb enough to buy those, well, let the buyer beware, right? Right. But unfortunately, like, I can't, you know, I don't want to endorse that attitude as a rigger. Like, people are going to get hurt. Uh, so if there were an ANSI, you know, E dot, uh, something something that could hap that could be printed on a swivel that rock exotica could say hey we have te- our 
our product is designed to this standard and you know that you're going to use it for a scrap sack and it's going to be safe. That would be, that would be one place that I really see a need, uh, uh, right now. Um, but you know, like a broader aspects, like that I'm very comfortable borrowing gear from other disciplines, rigging disciplines. And it's one of the most creative fields of rigging because it's not just truss and motors, although we do use truss and motors. It's not just uh, wire rope and nicopress. You know, you get into climbing gear and sailing gear and splicing rope and all these Mm -hmm. things that are, uh, well, they're all rigging, but it's not something you would encounter in, uh, 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 you know, certain areas, other bigger areas of the industry. and I don't think there's ever, I don't think that's ever going to stop. Like there's never going to be a one-stop place where I can buy circus gear and all of it's going to have a little stamp on it that says this is approved for acrobats. Um, there's always going to be something where like, hey, this pulley that's meant for sailboats, this is way better. I'm, I'm going to use that and that's okay. And I'm going to, and I'm going to say that it's okay, uh, kind of on my own authority that I know my job well enough that I can evaluate product X and say that it's good enough for my purposes. Yeah. I was, I, I I'm kind of curious if the, uh, the, the increased acceptance of rope access is going to help change some of the hardware side because rope equipment for rope access although very similar to sport climbing is a little different because of the constant loading. So the, one of the big issues with rock climbing or sport climbing equipment is it's not fatigue rating to yeah. sum it up in, in shorter words than what I was about to say. It's about fatigue rating. And the general rule for sport climbing is if you're climbing and you have a fall, you replace that equipment. Because it's it's cheap insurance to replace it and make sure it doesn't fail because it was exposed to dy- peak dynamic or even shock loads. Rope access equipment is designed a little differently to have that constant loading. So that's one of those areas that I think about of, okay, is, is there a movement where the availability of equipment that's designed for rope access um, maybe potentially more appropriate than some other resources. Um, Being a sailor myself, sailing equipment, there's some very robust stuff because wind pressure is exponential. Um, Yeah, it it is kind of an interesting idea. And I think one of the challenges is getting a consensus body together large enough to be able, because that's that's the only thing that makes any standard that is recognized by an AHJ different than what you were saying, which was my professional opinion and my professional opinion may be correct, but what brings more uh, validity to it is when you have a consensus among a, a large enough group of people that that is the correct answer or the correct thought process or theory and getting that consensus body. Well, good luck with getting a consensus out of rigor. Well, exactly. No, absolutely. And and that's part of the reason why we do try to do prescriptive because there are a lot of creative solutions to the same problem. 
and and saying, hey, what if we do this? And it, it just, I, I'm going to say it, sometimes it depends. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you can figure things out. So you mentioned fatigue. Uh, you know, maybe you can dig this up and throw the link in at the end because I don't have it. But uh, this guy, Zephyr Farouk, uh, who was an uh, engineer with Rock Exotica, did a white paper on uh, fatigue loading of uh, aluminum carabiner. Yeah, I've seen that uh, before. And the the interesting thing about it is it is you know it puts science to this idea of like oh well the climbing gear, you know how many how many times has it been loaded like how many times can it be loaded, and the answer is, uh, like fourteen thousand cycles to failure at what we would consider a uh, higher than normal loading like a. Uh, a quarter of the braking strength. Um, and that's something in the range of what he found. Uh, and then he did higher as well. What I don't think he did was just, okay, I'm going to load it to one-tenth of its braking strength and its aluminum and see how long I have to run the machine to get it to break. Uh, but, uh, you know, that I think that fatigue idea is something that's valid and it's something you should worry about or not worry about but be aware of right and that things have a finite left lifespan they're not literally not going to last you know indefinitely uh but well some things do like round slings uh but uh that uh for the most part when you're talking about fatigue and especially aluminum carabiners aluminum hardware you're not going to hit that within the normal lifespan of us using it. Like I actually did the math for uh, that loading scenario on a Vegas show like Ha, and it would be that you'd have to have that carabiner in service on a high, uh, highly loaded act, and you'd have to have it in there for something like three years before you'd get anywhere close to the low end of the fatigue result. Now, is that possible? Yeah, like if you're negligent and you're not swapping out your gear and watching for signs of wear and stuff like that. Yeah, I suppose that's possible. Uh, but again, it depends, right? And that's why that's why shows like in that's why shows in Vegas that when smart riggers had to make decisions like that, they're like, "Well, we got lots of money. Let's throw that carabiner out every six months." Yeah, so I, I I did find the link, so I'll put that in the show notes. And the title of the document is Fatigue Life and Damaged Carabiners. And it's uh, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. It's only six pages long. So it's not very long. It's an easy read. Um, and it's really good. You had mentioned that, you know, hey, let's throw this, you know, cheap insurance. Let's replace it every six months. It brings up the uh, Dunkin' Donuts Center in Rhode Island, Feld Entertainment. I believe it was the uh, Ringling Brothers Blue Tour had uh, a failure with a hair performance apparatus where eight performers were suspended from a basically a spreader bar that was hung off of two bridles that went to a center point, a single chain motor, and a... Uh, steel carabiner 40 kilonewton carabiner and the end result was that the carabiner was triaxially loaded so the carabiner was used improperly however in the investigation process they they talked about hey we we used steel because it it's stronger than aluminum 
That's the mindset. And we inspected it every day and we replaced them every year just to be careful. And if you read the investigation by OSHA, you realize that part of it was their inspection process wasn't as thorough as it should have been. The very important thing was obviously they misused the carabiner. They didn't use the widget the way the manufacturer told them to use it. That's that's 90% of it. But there was this little tiny part, which was the perception that steel was better than aluminum because of what? Is it stronger? Not necessarily. It How is it being used? What was the manufacturing process? There is that aspect of putting it on the manufacturer, how they design a product to be used and how it's intended to be used. There are applications where aluminum is stronger than steel for that given application. And that's that's one of those balancing acts of how, how, how much knowledge do you have and when do you say, hey, you know what? I should have someone check my knowledge base, make sure that I haven't misstepped here and, and just peer review it which is a term that we're probably all sick of hearing recently is, you know, (laughs) this was and was not peer reviewed. Um, But that's why that scientific process exists. Hey, I have this theory. Here's my research. Here's what I think it tells us. Do you guys agree? Yeah, we all agree. Or, eh, you know, what about this? And, And maybe someone finds something that actually enhances your theory or takes away from it. But then you reevaluate, you take the data and you adjust your theory until you get the the correct result. The uh, the Ringling accident is really unique because it's a well known accident where everyone has got access to the findings, which is pretty, which isn't often the case in at least circus accidents where you might hear about it, but then for lots of reasons you don't hear the exact like what went wrong. And so there's a lot of maybe gossip about it. Um, yeah, you know, well, the the Ringling accident, um, man, what's they're they're they were just some idiots. Like I I don't think I would ever try and put eight people on one carabiner unless I had a really unless it was the the safest possible choice. But and then the the trioxo loading, like you're right about the myths, right? That people think aluminum shatters and steel bends. Well, you look at the pictures of that broken carabiner and it didn't bend. Yeah. It, it, it shattered. Uh, yep. And uh, there's also, there's, there's the aspect of let's, let's go with some assumptions that they were following the unofficial standard for circus rigging of using a 10 to one design factor. Yeah. Well, they estimated that the performers and the spreader bar were about 1,500 pounds. It was a 40 kilonewton uh, carabiner in straight pull, which is just over 10,000 pounds. Let's even call it 11,000. You're below a 10 to 1 design factor right there. So yeah. you, you already kind of violated the unwritten rule of the design factor for performer uh, flying. I, again, I, you know. Aerial performance is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, it, it's it's it is kind of interesting, and and that's what I think is something for people to recognize. Um, 
you can do things what you think is the correct way into the best of your ability, and you potentially still could be wrong. That is that is the risk we take when we do any of this type of work is you could still be wrong, which is why you want to get other people to, to double check things. Um, I, I had you- within the last three weeks, a, a good friend of mine that I worked with on Kuza that's been on your podcast and uh, he sent me a text about a question that was that. I knew that he knew the answer it was a mechanical advantage question. Like, Hey, look at this and tell me what the mechanical advantage is of this schematic. Right. And I did. And I, I confirmed to him, you know, what it was. And then I asked him like, you know, why, you know, or like, I didn't have to ask him, but I joked around about like, why, you know, you, you, uh, you know, you wrote, you drew this, right. Why are you checking with me? And it's, you want that it, it, the guys that I know that do this and do it are smart about it. We check in with each other. Like I'm not an expert about every little thing. And you know what, when I, uh, crimp a life critical, uh, Nicopress wage, I go to someone else that I know and ask them to check it. And I know I did it right. I've done, you know, thousands of them. Right. But it's important to me that it is cross-checked and that if exactly. I, if I don't, if I want to live that and be able to sleep at night and know that my wife who's hanging on the rigging is, is that she's safe, right? That that's part of the culture that I had to, to, to work on, uh, the people that did that work with me. And, you know, I would make a point of, of, uh, even like the simple, some of the simplest stuff, like, oh, I just swapped out a thing, right? I put in a new shackle because I don't know, whatever reason I put in a new shackle, right? Hey, uh, if I was working alone, right? Hey, uh, come on over here and just double check what I did, you know? And that's, that is super important. And all of the guys that I respect that do that stuff do rigging at the circus level that I rig at, um, you know, we, we talk to each other about, like, hey, this this thing that I'm doing, I'm not really sure. Well, I'm pretty sure it's the best way. But what do you guys think? And it's and part of it is I would rather be prideful in never having a serious failure than being correct. Yeah. It, like, yeah, we all have id. We all like to be like, oh, look at how smart you are. And you figured this out. Here's a pat on the back. But. At the end of the day, my job is still to make sure that nothing goes boom and falls out of the sky unintendedly. So that's where I take pride in. I do a good job. I have, knock on wood, not, and I just triggered the dogs, um, <laughs> that, I, that, that the failures that I have had and the failures that I will have are minimal. I drop a shackle pin, you know, out of the lift five feet on the ground. I, you know, drop something minor. I break something minor, but it's not part of a catastrophic failure that creates damage or injures anybody. Um, and I think that's also the, 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 an important mindset for people to adopt is acknowledge that you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. What you're trying to do is minimize the, uh, the results of those mistakes. So, 
I, I, I mean, I, I can live through all of the rigging mistakes that I have, that I have been through. And one of my favorite interview questions when I was interviewing riggers uh, was, have you ever been around a workplace accident? And, you know, like the, a lot of the times the answer was like, nope, uh, you know, like never had anything bad happen at work. And it was like, okay, you're lucky. Right. Uh, and then the better answers were like, oh yeah, well we had a near miss or whatever. Okay. The follow-up question, this is the real question, right? What'd you learn from it? And yeah. I, I, I'll tell, talk to you about a mistake that I made that ended up, I had to walk my buddy to the emergency room and he's, I mean, he was fine. This is a long time ago, but, uh, I was in the middle of, uh, working quickly at a pin rail, uh, in a hemp house. And he called for, uh, a small adjustment on a line set that was different than what I was working on. So I paused in the sequence of what I was doing and went over and did what he asked for. And then I came back to the sequence and I effed it up and uh, the pipe uh, decked. And uh, what I walked away from there as well, uh, you know, because I, I replayed that moment like all night long as I couldn't sleep, right? Like, you know, and I knew exactly what I screwed up. But the lesson I tried to walk away from there is a don't rush and B if you're, if you've started something, finish it before moving on that, especially with rigging, multitasking isn't always, isn't really a good thing. Right. And I had just followed that basic rule in that moment. Then my buddy wouldn't have had a conk on his head. And, uh, you know, we would have, instead of going to the emergency room, we went to the bar. Uh, so, and I, I have definitely been in other situations working at height throughout my career where that lesson has come back to me. And I've had to say to whoever really has got a pressing, urgent need that they need me to stop what I'm doing and go help them with whatever it is, or send in the blah, 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 or move this thing. It's like, look, you got to wait. It's not, it's not worth rushing. I'm in the middle of this thing. I'm not going to stop moving this truss so I can come over here and move your speaker. I'm going to finish this and I'm sorry, but you're going to need to wait. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, I hope all the listeners can answer no to this question, but I would pose the question, have you ever hurt a friend slash coworker unintentionally? And there's no worse feeling Yeah, that, that, that you, you injured someone that, and, and again, we're a small industry. A lot of us are friends with the people we work with. I'm not saying it's all the time, but you know, feeling guilt about the fact that you did something that injured someone else. If you hurt yourself, a lot of times you can uh, rationalize that and be like, well, it's my own fault. You know, I only did it to myself. You hurt someone else that that can really screw things up. And depending on the severity, I mean, I have a friend who had an incident with another person in a genie lift and not only do they not talk about each other, but one of them left the industry because he was like, I'm, I'm done. This, this is, not for me anymore. So yeah, that, that's some really good advice. We've covered a lot of ground. I mean, we, we did a lot and I only asked you one question from my list of questions. That's only oh, yeah. the first one. Well, there's one that everyone expects me to ask. So I think I'll ask it. We've gone almost an hour and 50 minutes. Um, 
you have any good rigging jokes or bad rigging jokes? <laughs> the uh, the correct answer to that is to name like the the worst rigger that you know, and he's the biggest rigging joke that you know. <laughs> oh, uh, but I only know uh, good riggers anymore, so uh, I try not to use that joke. Uh, what do you call uh, what do you call a uh, a pretty lady on a rigger's arm? I don't know. What do you call a pretty lady on a rigger's arm? A tattoo. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> nice. Um, Excellent. I uh, well, do you want to do you want to hear a Mike Mike and Bill Sapsa story? Oh yes. <laughs> uh, I can picture Mike Sapsa saying this to me. So uh, in like '97, I was young and I got referred to like a traditional sapsis rigging gig uh, is like labor where they put up some uh, Christmas decorations right around Thanksgiving down on Marcus street in Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And uh, there's like, uh, I forget what building it was, but there's a skyscraper and they have like a, uh, a Christmas tree over the awning. And then down the way at the mall, uh, there's like a Santa sleigh sort of thing. And, you know, sapsis put it up every year. So I got sent up to the roof with Mike Saptis and uh, another guy who turns out also didn't really know what he was doing. <laughs> and uh, Mike rappelled down in a 20 something stories uh, from the roof to get to this awning. And uh, we belayed him. Uh, OK, that that part went uh, pretty well. Like that one that went fine. But then we start hauling up the thing with the same rope that he that he went down on. And the thing is getting heavier and heavier. And the guy I'm next to, I don't remember his name, but uh, he was, uh, I was young and he was old and he was getting really gassed and it was getting really heavy. And we had a radio to talk to Mike and we had to stop. Right. And then uh, we had to stop hauling, but Mike didn't know that. And I was reaching for the radio when it just blows up with Mike Saps is yelling at me. Like what the, every, what, you know, what is going on up there? And we explain, and I'm like, okay. And then he yells some more on the radio, and then okay. And we get through that moment, right? And then uh, we, uh, I go down, and now I'm working on the awning with them, and I'm doing something, and I make another mistake. And uh, Mike just bites his tongue and like wouldn't look at me. And then Chris Harris <laughs> said, "said um, You're going to need to go down the street and work with Bill." <laughs> uh. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm going down the street to work with Bill. <laughs> it is it is so funny how um, how different Mike and Bill are from each other. Um, I mean, it's it it is stereotypical twins. I mean, they're they're first of all, there are a lot of people who are like, wait, Bill has a twin because Mike uh, Mike doesn't have the. Uh, I'm going to use the term celebrity profile that Bill does. Bill has been the face of Sapsis rigging. Um, but yeah, they, they definitely interesting personalities between the two of them. Um, and both amazing riggers. Uh, it, it is really interesting to see that, you know, the two of them as, as siblings both got in the same industry and, and worked together and haven't killed each other. So that's the really interesting part. <laughs> Yeah, I, there's definitely been moments where uh, it's been a, many years since I saw anything like this, but where it really looked like they were going to kill each other. <laughs> I uh, 
when I took my arena, sorry, theater ETCP exam in 2005, you sat at, you know, school classroom tables, two people per table. And Mike Sapsis was sitting right next to me. And uh, I walked out maybe an hour before him. And I was like, I failed this thing. Oh my God, that, that's, that's bad. I should have sat there and just stared at the paper longer. There's no reason I should be leaving before Mike Sapsis. So I passed yeah. by a miracle. He's, uh, I think Mike is the best rigger I've ever met. Uh, maybe, maybe his son, Paul, but you know, I don't want to take anything away from Bill, but Mike, uh, I'm just, uh, he, he knows how to get it done. And, uh, he's, uh, he's got a quality about him that, that more riggers ought to have and that he's, uh, truly generous and humble. Um, yeah, he's a great guy. You should talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying Reach out to him. Maybe here's a little uh, social media shimming. Uh, come on, Mike, get on the episode. So uh, he'll, tell you, he'll tell you the best Bill stories. Oh, I'm sure. This is good. Maybe this is a ploy by Bill to keep Mike off of the uh, podcast so he won't tell stories. Oh well, you know you you uh, you should talk to Bill about that. He might be able to send you a check to keep you from talking to Mike. Yeah, there we go. See, there's a way to monetize it. <laughs> so. All right, Andy. I think I think we have a good one here, and uh, I want to thank you for spending some time uh, talking about all things rigging and some topics we haven't covered before on the podcast and some interesting discussions. I really appreciate the time, and I'm sure the listeners do. Um, yeah, I'll give you an opportunity for some closing comments. Oh, man. Um, well, I hope that uh, you and your listeners found something that I rambled about to have some merit. Uh, and, uh, that, uh, you know, rigging is hard. Don't forget that rigging is hard. Uh, and you need to work hard at it. Like I, I don't know how to teach rigging. I just know that you got to learn it. Um, that it's got to come from the person that wants to know that all the best riggers that I know, they didn't, they didn't get it because they worked with other good riggers. They got it because they wanted to master it. Uh, and if you don't have that drive, you should probably go be a sound guy or something. <laughs> that is awesome. That, that just a humhead joke in there that that's, you know, the cherry on top of the, the uh, cake. <laughs> well, again, thank you very much. I appreciate the time and I'm, I'm sure people got something out of many of the things you said. So thank you. Well, thank you. And uh, for everyone else listening, thank you very much. Oh, and here's, I should have said this at the beginning, but I apologize. I took the week off last week, so there was no podcast. So we made up for it with a, an extra long one this week. So again, thank you for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger. The shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.